This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You have to get your head around what potential end uses they're thinking about for your data. You have to imagine all the other potential end uses of the data that they haven't enumerated, but they've reserved the right in the legalese to use it for anything else that they come up with. And then you have to go through the exercise of figuring out how to manipulate the underlying settings in the product if you're going to still use it, but you want to protect your own privacy. That's a power asymmetry. That, that tilts the scales in the direction of whatever it is that companies want to do. And of course, our politicians have enabled that to happen. You can point the finger at the tech companies and say, how dare they violate our privacy? But everything they're doing is permitted, right? Or the vast majority of it is permitted. What isn't being permitted if it's discovered is policed, but most of it is permitted. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In this episode, we're diving back into the conversation I had with professors Mehran Sahami and Jeremy Weinstein about their book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. So how did we end up in a world where Americans feel comfortable or feel uncomfortable with government accessing their data when government has enormous oversight and constraints? but feel massively comfortable with the private sector accessing their data when they have no visibility into how it's going to be used. And I think the power asymmetry is an important part of it, that people don't really understand the potential end uses. I also think we've spent 30 plus years in the United States sowing distrust in our public institutions uh, and the people who work in them and lifting up our private sector institutions as those that are the drivers of innovation and people who can't do any wrong. I have a thought that just occurred to me, and it's, it's something I've, I've talked about before, but in this context, it hadn't come up. And it, I don't know if it's an answer to this question, but, I, but I'm interested in your take on it. I wonder if the, um, the individual's experience with each of those institutions shapes their preference for privacy and, and comfort sharing data. For example, we now live in a moment when literally everything is on demand. Everything you could possibly want is available at the push of a finger. Uh, whether it's transportation, food, sex, whatever you want, you can have delivered to you practically. And that's that's what technology has delivered to, to individuals. But when they think about their experience with government, it is the opposite of that. It is the most, you know, painful. It is an excruciating experience whenever you engage with government at almost every level. There are some exceptions to that. There are some really great efficient experiences, but they are few and far between. I think when an, when an individual, when a voter goes to the ballot box and is and to the extent that they're thinking about this, 
their general experience with government is painful. It's not pleasant. It isn't convenient. It's not adding value, at least not value that they experience on a day-to-day basis. And I wonder if you think that shapes the relationship at all. I mean, it absolutely does. But I'm also reminded as we have this conversation, you know, of the debates around the Affordable Care Act with people yelling, don't let the government touch my Medicare. Yeah. Right. And and sort of the degree of, of misunderstanding uh, that has been deliberately sowed in our politics about what government is and isn't capable of. And that that's not to deny that the general yeah. argument that you're making is right, which is that people experience extraordinary efficiency from the private sector and experience often extraordinary inefficiency uh, from government. And, and we can take that argument even broader, um, which is just to say, like, why does Europe protect the right to privacy? Mm. Well, actually, there are cultural values that underlie these kinds of moves. And Parts of Europe experienced, you know, authoritarian rule under the Soviet bloc with tremendous misuse of the control over people's personal information to make judgments about who should be rewarded and who should be punished with extraordinary consequences of the arm of the repressive state. You think about the distrust of African-Americans in the United Mm -hmm. States about the role of the police. Mm -hmm. Where is discomfort with respect to facial recognition Technology is not so much about Facebook creating facial recognition technologies, but about the potential of police forces to have access to these technologies, especially if they do a terrible job of identifying people with darker colored skin. And they do. So, So surely people's experiences shape their perspectives on privacy. And we can think at the national level that there are cultures that influence these choices. But I think even given all of that, let's recognize that the deck has been stacked in a particular way, right? By the failure of government to set any guardrails around personal data monetization and extraction uh, by tech companies, only the most limited guardrails, and creating a structure of notice and consent that you think is about your liberty and autonomy, but actually stands in the way of you, number one, understanding how your data is being used, and number two, turning your preferences into something that's actionable. Imagine a world in which there was a one-stop shop where you could convey your privacy preferences and every application that you use would be bound by that single expression of your privacy preferences. That world is possible. I want to live in that world. But we haven't set it up. <sighs> but it's technically possible, yeah. but we've never set it up. That's on us. <sighs> yeah, we had a student actually who set up that world. And the reason why she did it was she was motivated by the experience of domestic abuse survivors. And that was the population that originally motivated her because these are people who also want the benefits of these applications, but for them, privacy is a central concern, right? You don't want your abuser finding out where you are when you've escaped. And so she set up this application that in fact did that. And the interesting thing about it, right, is some people would look at that and say, well, that's a niche market, right? Why is that? That's not something that's going to scale. It turns out, when you look at that problem, it's a problem we all have. And our solution was motivated by a particular group of people, but actually shows the generality. I think one of the other things your question brings up is this very interesting idea of where you feel like you have choice. Mm. I think a lot of people feel as though there's one government, I don't have choice. I can't turn it off and choose another government (laughs) app. Not easily. (laughs) But the whole point, and and so you have this feeling like I actually have more power online with these apps because I can choose which company or I can delete Facebook or whatever the case may be. And what that completely belies is the point that, in fact, you can choose your government. That's the point of a democracy. Democracy. And if you come into a feeling as though there is only one and you don't have a choice, you've given up your agency. Mm. 
But it's not on demand. <laughs> it's not on demand. Doesn't have a lot of hashtags associated. And the, the dogs I hear are not as cute. But, you know, it's what we got. And it's pretty powerful if we use it. So one of the things that uh, that you all brought up in the book that I hadn't really been thinking about, but that was obviously familiar to me uh, and will be familiar to many of our listeners, I'm sure, uh, was that we now, you know, actually need some companies and engineers to come up with some kind of answer to the trolley problem. And the trolley problem uh, for our listeners is a series of thought experiments in ethics and psychology uh, involving ethical dilemmas. So usually it begins with a scenario uh, where a runaway trolley is on a course to run over and kill some number of people. Five is the traditional number, uh, but a driver or a bystander can intervene and, and divert the vehicle to just kill one person on a different track. And uh, and then there are a series of other scenarios where the person can either do nothing, um, in which case five people die or pull the lever and divert the trolley, killing only one person. So how should we be thinking about the fact that we that we have programmers and engineers trying to figure out the answers to these kinds of problems where you know they're really no longer abstract those those thought experiments experiments are used in the literature in abstract ways um but <laughs> right now Questions like that have real-world implications. For example, the way algorithms are designed to to power self-driving cars. Like the trolley problem is actually a very real, tangible problem now because of AI-driven cars. So, um, Mehran, how do you think about that? So, one of the things that's fascinating about that problem is when you instantiate it in the real world, what do what does consumer preference get you? So there have been some studies, and what they actually look at is when they ask people, what would you like the car to do in these cases? Yeah. Most people answer, I would like the car to save as many lives as possible. If you can basically divert the car to kill one person instead of five, we should do that. Then you ask them a slight variation of the question is, okay, now you're buying a car. What do you want it programmed to do? And of course, they say, well, if the person who's going to die is me, I don't want that car. I want the car to go and kill some other people and, and preserve the driver. Well, what does that create? It creates a market incentive for the companies building the technology to answer to the consumer and say, okay, we're actually going to build cars that maximize for passenger safety, not for social safety. And so you get the outcome that actually most people don't want driven by market forces. You could say that's a form of market failure. So how do you address that? Because what consumers say they really want globally is not what they really want to pay for. That shows the power of regulation to say what we actually need, if you want to achieve the outcome that people want rather than just believing the market's going to solve the problem, we need to actually say collectively, if we've agreed that this is the outcome we want, we should regulate it. We should take the choice out of the hands of just people who are trying to maximize profit or the engineer whose job is to go implement that in an algorithm because they can't reflect what the collective decision-making really wants. One of the things that we do with our students is we run a set of simulated decision-making exercises, mm. putting them in the position of being an engineer who's designing a product or a CEO and a board deciding whether to roll out a product or in the position of a regulator thinking about what kind of framework should exist. And self-driving cars is obviously a, a tremendous one in which to work through some of these questions, uh, as Maron just described. One of the interesting things about this domain, in contrast to lots of the other domains that we're talking about, is that it, it approximates much more closely a kind of slow food movement mm. orientation for tech. 
because the stakes of self-driving cars making mistakes are so transparent to everybody. Um, everyone is exposed to these potential harms in very direct ways. And as a result, and given the way that we regulate the roadways in general, there's been a slow and deliberate effort to craft rules and to create spaces whereby these technologies can be tested in the real world, to create transparency around the algorithms that power these technologies and how these trade-offs are being programmed in. And although states in the United States, this laboratory of democracy that we have, might set in place very different regulatory frameworks, Arizona, for example, created its own regulatory oasis for self-driving cars. When self-driving car companies felt that California was too restrictive, even Arizona isn't free from popular concern about these powerful robotic vehicles that are on the road. And so when, in a very unfortunate turn of events, a self-driving car kills a pedestrian in Arizona, as happened a number of years ago, that regulatory oasis, that openness disappears, right? People begin to attack the self-driving vehicles in Arizona with rocks and axes, right? And so this speaks to the politics that's at the core of the rollout of any new technology, but the care that's being brought into the space of, of, of automated vehicles, of self-driving cars, is in contrast to the way that we approach virtually every other technology, especially those technologies that are being built up to platform scale, that are going to tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions of users overnight uh, without any attention to the potential harms. Do you think questions, dilemmas like what is essentially the trolley problem in, in, in AI, in, in self-driving cars, do you think that people, average citizens, are equipped to help answer that question? I mean, first of all, something to say about yeah. all of these questions yeah. is that there's no right and wrong answer to right. any of these questions. Right. These are all hard questions. You know, we haven't even started yet to talk about social media and free speech <laughs> and, and democracy. So none of these questions, these value trade-offs are ones where you know, someone could be educated enough to come up with the right answer. Yeah. And in fact, it's not even about education, right? Because these are about preferences. These right. are about value trade-offs. Right. And that's what brings us back to this technology that is democracy, right? Which is that we need to put people in a position where they understand what's at stake and they can begin to develop a sense of their own views about the extent to which we optimize for global safety, the extent to which we trade off, for example, the safety of people in cars versus bicyclists on the side of the road. One of the dilemmas that we have our students play with because there was early evidence that self-driving cars improved everyone's safety except for bicyclists, the way that they were designed. And we ask our students, are you okay with that? <laughs> right? And everyone says, yeah, we're just fine with that. We're like, are there any bicyclists in the room? <laughs> Right. So, so, you know, but all of our students are biking on the Stanford campus where there are no cars around. Right. Right. So they're not thinking about who is actually bearing the costs. And I think one of the virtues of that example is that bicyclists are just a proxy for a population that's harmed. And that population yeah. that's harmed may be people who use a particular vehicle, people in the case of the automation of our workforce who are at the lower end of the income or educational distribution. In the case of facial recognition technology, it's people with darker skin. So there are populations that are harmed. And I think our challenge as a society is to give people the tools and the information to recognize that these are value judgments, to enable them to form opinions, 
right? And to communicate those opinions to those people we entrust with the responsibility in our democratic systems for helping us arrive at acceptable choices to a majority of our country. You know, this makes me think of the maxim, uh, what gets measured gets managed, right? And we measure lots of things. We optimize for lots of things. Mehran has not always had. And that's what gets managed. That's what the tech gets built to do. But one thing we aren't measuring is public opinion about public inputs, public preferences about the implications of these technologies. So what you're saying is that's something we need to start measuring and measuring accurately in a way that decision makers can utilize. I was just going to say that's exactly one of the things a colleague of ours, Nate, personally argues for is that a lot of the data that's inside these companies where you could actually run studies to understand some of the effects, you know, how well does a particular algorithm do on particular populations? What does that distribution look like? Because the data is trapped in the companies and external researchers don't have access to it. The only people that have access are either a company that may or may not be motivated to look at it. And even if it does look at it, is still left in the decision-making role where a society just has opacity. They don't get to see anything at all. And so part of the proposal there is if you were to make that data available and access to the algorithms available, you know, under particular conditions, you need to vet the researchers. You put these things in an escrow so they're not publicly available. But you allow independent sources to measure the impacts of these algorithms and then report it both to the company and to society. Mm. And we actually have a model for that. It's called auditing and finance, Mm. right? We already do that Mm -hmm. with companies. There's no reason why we couldn't do that with algorithms to help both inform the companies, but inform the public so that they can actually make more educated choices about what their preferences are and what they'd like to see. The FDA does some version of this with drugs. Um, As we're talking about the ethical and moral questions here, it seems to me that the chain of events in tech right now is I have an idea, and so how do I make it? What would we need to do for the question to become, should I make it? Well, I think we should start with what are problems worth solving, right? Before we even get to, I have an idea, right? And and that first order question, it kind of speaks to to part of what's really broken in tech, which is that if if the people that occupy the pipeline into technology, the people who inhabit the tech companies, the people who are in leadership positions, don't reflect in any meaningful way the diversity of lived experience that exists in the United States or around the world, the I have idea, I have an idea part of the equation is where we're already going awry, right? Because the very questions that people are trying to answer, the problems that they're solving for, um, you know, are, are, are replicating for, you know, there's a joke in Silicon Valley that, you know, you know, people, you got these tech companies that people are working in and, and the, the competition is how to get people delivered food as quickly as possible to satisfy these tech companies. Like whose problems are we solving? with these new platforms that make that possible, right? A very small sliver of the population. So for me, there's a first order question before I have an idea, which is what is a problem worth solving, right? And what are different ways of solving it, right? And then where does technology fit into solving that problem, right? So not beginning immediately with technology. And and I think that's part of how we break out of, of the instinct that people have that technology is the solution to everything because technology obviously isn't the solution to everything. So that's how I'd change the first part of the equation. Maron, how would you change the rest of the equation? 
Well, it's interesting if you look at the people who have brought to light some of the problems about distributional impacts in technology, they are people who are exactly in those groups most affected. So people like Joy Boilamini and Tibnit Jebru, who looked at some of the initial work around facial recognition and how it was more difficult for black women, basically, to be identified by these systems. Someone like Sophia Noble, who's talked about bias and search search uh, Mm -hmm. algorithm results. And the interesting thing there is if we have a narrow view of the world, as Jeremy was alluding to, in these tech companies, then the problems we solve are for that narrow sliver of the world. Mm -hmm. So making educational opportunities available to get into technology to more people, as, as backwards as that sounds, you would almost think like, well, we need people in other areas too. We do, but we need to create a greater pipeline into technology of people who have a wider variety of lived experiences and problems they can bring to the table to actually be solved. Part of that also gets to the funding mechanisms. Yeah. Right? I was going to I was going to just interject doesn't that uh, sort of presuppose that there is market demand for those problems to be solved? So it's a great point, and it gets back exactly, and this actually plays out over and over in history, that point of the student I told you about who built for a particular population. It turns out that oftentimes when you focus on a particular population and solving that problem, it's just symptomatic, but extremely symptomatic Mm. of a larger problem we have. Mm. Right, One of the classic ones along those same lines that's actually not from the the tech sector that's often talked about is cutouts and sidewalks so you could have wheelchairs go up the sidewalk, right? And you would think, well, that's a pretty small group of people. Guess what? It turns out everyone uses those because sometimes bicyclists (laughs) want to get on the sidewalk, people who are pulling the little wheelie bags from the airport, right? When was the last time you tried to pull that thing up the side of a curb as opposed to finding where the cutout is? I ride an electric unicycle in DC and I rely on those little ramps. And There you go. Well, they weren't originally built for you, (laughs) but it turns out a lot of people use them. That is extremely true with a lot of technology. And so when we think about things like our privacy, when we think about what are the affordances that we would like to have in the world, oftentimes there's a subset of the population that has an extreme need for that. But if we think about the potential broader market, that's the place where we need to think about opening up more broadly. That yes, there is a social function to having greater funding and a greater pipeline for people to come into the community. But what it really means is we can get a focus on problems that actually impact a wide swath of people that were just getting ignored before. That is fascinating, and I'd love to I'd love to look at that research. The 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 extreme need all being very symptomatic of a wider need. I'd really love to look at that. I, yeah, I want to give you one more even direct answer. Uh, even more direct answer yeah. to your question. You know, you said the technologist's viewpoint of the world is, I have an idea, I should build it. What should be the technologist's viewpoint of the world? And I said, well, it should start with, what's a problem worth solving? Then I have an idea. Then who might benefit from my idea? Who might be harmed by my idea? Let me build a first prototype of it. Let me test it. Who did benefit? Who was harmed? Now let me think about scaling it. Now, you might hear all those questions and say, wow, that's slow, <laughs> yeah. right? But part of the reason that people like Nicole Wong, who was the former deputy chief technology officer of the United States and someone who served in, in major roles at tech companies have called for a slow food movement for tech is basically that that deliberate intentionality about trying to anticipate who benefits and who harm, who might be harmed, to observe those effects in the world, to adapt your product before you scale, 
Those are things that are just not built into the move fast and break things mentality. And of course, that's why we experience not just targeted consequences in geographic locales or for small groups, but social consequences that are macro where we could say, is social media breaking our democracy? Right? Those are the mat or is automation going to destroy work? These are the questions that we ask ourselves about the future of technology because of the way in which we build and deploy technology. Oh my God. Yeah, that's so right. That's a really good answer. In the book, you quote Jack Dorsey, uh, the CEO of Twitter, talking about um, you know they had been unprepared for the ways the platform could be used to cause harm. And he says, if we were to redo anything, it would just be to really look at some of the problems that we were assuming that we would face and make sure that we have the right skills uh, and not assume that the product managers and designers and engineers have those skill sets. What are the types of skills that these platforms need to add to their tool bag? What are the ways non-engineers can fill in those gaps, Miron? Well, there are several. One is an understanding of the values that are at stake and thinking critically about what is actually being uh, promoted by the technology you're building. And as a result, what are some of the things that might be falling by the wayside or getting downvalued? To be able to understand that requires a broader view. And, and part of that is thinking about, you know, why do we have a philosopher co-teaching the class mm -hmm. with us? Because a lot of philosophical debates are around what are values? Where do those values stem from? What insights have we gotten about them from the debates over thousands of years? At the same time, we need to have the sociological or the social scientific skills like Jeremy brings to the table to say, what are the things that we can actually measure? So this isn't just a matter of conjecture. It's not someone sitting there with a piece of code and saying, oh, I wonder what would happen, right? <laughs> which, if, is what they, which is what happens, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> if you wonder what's going to happen, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was some mechanism that you could test that? Well, it turns out there is. You just need to go do it and you need to have the understanding that people do this. Yeah. Um, and then to take that a step further is kind of thinking about the broader understanding of what is the distribution of people impacted by this technology. That's one of the things you don't often see. As a matter of fact, you see the exact opposite in a lot of places, which is people saying, what's the problem that my friends and I have, right? Especially if you're a 20-something yeah. in college, you see a lot of apps that stem out of that problem. Why does something like Uber exist? Well, because three of my buddies and I couldn't get a ride one rainy night. It's like, okay, that's great. I understand that. But what does that mean about the people who are driving the cars? Right? And if you look at then the intentionality down the road to say, who's going to benefit? Well, guess what? The people who were driving the cars before were the, the main beneficiaries if they're taxi cab drivers. Now they get excluded from a system that says, well, we're actually taking a cut of every ride and we're treating you as expendable because if you don't take the ride, someone else will. That creates an entirely different social dynamic that, you know, if it was thought about and people decided that was okay, is a little sociopathological. More likely, they just didn't think about it. And when they realized the impact, there was a finger on the scale that says, you know what? We need bigger numbers for revenue next quarter. Mm. Let's just keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And that's how we get to the outcomes. It's not that someone had yeah. a grand design that says, we're going to build this bad system. There's just a bunch of factors that didn't get tested out. And we got to a place where the relentless push toward profit just perpetuates. But that isn't an argument that Uber shouldn't exist. 
right? No, but it is probably an argument that says, you know what? Wouldn't it be great if the people who were drivers for Ubers were employees of Ubers and mm. got stock options? But they Th tried to do that here in California, right? So, you know, in California, they tried to do that. Uber, uh, Lyft, DoorDash came back with a $200 million campaign that basically got Proposition 25 on the ballot or 22, mm -hmm. 22 on the ballot that overturned what the state legislature had done to try to make classify these folks as employees. But you know what the courts did? They came back and said, <laughs> nice try. That yeah. proposition's actually unconstitutional. Mm. I mean, I think the yeah, amazing thing about Proposition 22 yeah. is that not only did the companies use a referendum system in California to overturn legislation that was adopted by you know, democratically elected politicians that reflected this valuing of, of, of sort of the plight of workers in the gig economy, which of course is legal to do. Although everyone in California knows how broken the referendum system is, is and the degree yeah. to which it's manipulated by moneyed interests to yeah. get outcomes that they want. But set that aside. So they, 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 they sort of put this on the ballot to overturn, you know, this piece of legislation. But they wrote in to the ballot proposition that. The state legislature could not reverse the ballot proposition unless it had a seven-eighths vote, okay? <laughs> so they, uh, this is why it was deemed unconstitutional. Yeah. They basically wrote into it a constitutional change <laughs> for the state of California, which preserved for a Republican minority in the state of California the right to veto yeah. the will of not just a supermajority, a super, supermajority. So if you want evidence of the tech sector disparaging the role of our democratic institutions, look no further than Proposition 22. And thank God for the courts who looked at that and said, you can't rewrite the Constitution through a ballot proposition <laughs> that's funded by $200 million of tech money looking out for companies' bottom line. We have a process for amending the Constitution, and that's not it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about Facebook a bit. Um, I know we've 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 talked a little about it, but I want to talk about Facebook and and Mark. I'm Zuck. impressed that we've gone an hour. I know. and barely talked about I, it's, Facebook. It's been it's that is an, it is an exercise in constraint. No, restraint. but I think it's it also <laughs> speaks to one of the things that Rob and Maron and I say always, yeah. which is that the problems that we confront are not problems that are about Facebook. Right. Facebook is an exemplar. Right of a set of underlying challenges in the tech sector. And all of the attention on Zuckerberg or Sandberg or the particular aspects of the Facebook files, if we don't realize that they speak to a broader problem, we're missing what's really going Which on. Which is precisely what I want to do now. Not, we're not going to dissect Facebook, but I want to use Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook as emblematic of the problems that you talk about in your book. So Kara Swisher... Uh, talked about this in regards to Facebook. She she highlighted the difference between uh, making and building an app and navigating the social and political issues that Facebook has to deal with. Um, and she said that Mark Zuckerberg is ill-equipped for that task, but that almost no one would be able to make these types of decisions, which is what you're getting at, Jeremy. How does the narrative of the the genius inventor, entrepreneur, CEO, the Silicon Valley dream? Uh, where one person has to do it all, you know, set them up for these types of crises. Miran? Well, we have 
founder worship. That's yeah. part of where the issue comes from. As we say, because these people created this company and became fabulously wealthy, um, they should have the ability to be able to set the decision-making process. And that's taken to an extreme in the past few years where we've even seen the governance model at the companies prevent founders, for example, from being ousted from the company, right? You change the, the voting value in the shares, you create different class of stock. And so there's just a greater concentration of power. And in some sense, Zuckerberg did that to himself. And then years later starts bemoaning the fact that we need some regulation to tell us how to do content moderation, because despite the fact that he's concentrated power in the company, he doesn't necessarily want the power in every situation. What he actually wants is the government to try to do content moderation and show that either it can't or whatever it comes up with, he can defer liability basically for decision-making to them. Mm. And what that notion of hero worship gets to though, or founder worship gets to, is somehow that the same skills that were necessary to create a tech company are the skills that are needed to mm -hmm. be able to navigate a problem that is political and is social. Mm -hmm. And those two things are fairly different. It's pretty rare to actually find one person to find, to have all those skills. But more importantly, even if he had the skills, let's just say he was wonderful in terms of the decision-making process and understood all the political and social ramifications, one person shouldn't be in a place to make all those decisions. So it's a matter of politics, but we give up that notion of realizing that that collective decision-making needs to be brought to bear because we think that this person has the right to do it because they created the company. Yeah, totally. And Jeremy's nodding. Why do some people in Silicon Valley, especially Andreessen Horowitz, uh, see that model as a good thing? Because it isn't, I don't think that every venture capital firm sees that model as a good thing. Eventually, they encourage the the guy who started to step down, take a take a different role or sit back and let let a different type of person take over the reins of the company. That's a model. But Andreessen Horowitz sees it completely differently. There are different viewpoints here. They see great benefit to the company if the founder remains in charge. And I I wonder why that difference exists in the in the venture capital models. Do you do you know? Well, one thing to add to that is, you know, sometimes you'll see term sheets from venture capitalists that are referred to as founder friendly, right? Huh. Which means what we want to do is we want to give you some favorable terms and we're your buddy in this, right? And so think of it from the standpoint of an entrepreneur and someone saying, you know what, the thing we care about is you remaining in charge from the outset. We're going to give you friendly terms and we're going to broadcast the message that you're in charge. We're not going to be like these other guys that oust the founders of the company. Who are you going to do the deal with, uh, right? So there's a marketing strategy to it that broadcasts advantage. very clearly on yeah. early on when someone's trying to decide who to do the deal with. I'm going to go with the person who's founder friendly and wants to keep me in charge. Mm -hmm. I want to challenge the premise of the question just yeah. a little bit to make sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that somehow Mark Zuckerberg could have been replaced by someone yeah. who had a broader worldview. Maybe they took our ethics class at Stanford. They'd get all of these things right. I don't think that's the right framework okay. to bring to this to this problem. It's undoubtedly true that there may be limits to what those who build technologies bring to the table when it comes to thinking about these issues, and that's part of what we're trying to address. It's also why we've seen in a lot of tech companies the bringing in of corporate expertise and finance expertise, because those who build technologies can't figure out how to monetize them, can't figure out how to bring in the big bucks. So surely different kinds of expertise matter. Um, and ultimately, 
thinking about models, whether in a particular individual or a leadership team that bring that expertise to the table is healthy. But I think the core issue, the legitimacy crisis that Facebook suffers, isn't about Mark Zuckerberg's breadth or narrowness as an individual. It's that he effectively, Facebook effectively, not even Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook is the governor of speech for more than 3 billion people in the world. Facebook decides whether you can speak, decides whether it's going to amplify what you say, decides whether what you say is going to be taken down. And that makes people profoundly uncomfortable because they don't like the choices that are being made. They don't feel like they have visibility into those choices. Um, And Facebook could say, well, just get off my platform. But people don't get to take their social networks with them. They don't get to take their data with them. None of those rights are embedded. So you can't get the emergence of a competitor because the whole structure has been set up to reinforce that centralized power. So Facebook comes along and says, well, let me create a Facebook oversight board, a group of 30 distinguished outsiders who will make judgments about our content moderation policies. Well, why does Facebook get to decide who gets to make those judgments? Don't we have something called our political institutions that should help to make those choices? I didn't have a voice in who those 30 individuals were uh, who were selected. And do I feel confident that that group is sufficiently empowered to check the power that exists in Facebook? I don't. But it does speak to what Maron described earlier, which is Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want this power. Mm. He wants the wealth, mm. right? He wants, he wants the user base, but he doesn't want the finger pointed at him uh, when decisions are made that, that leave people aggrieved. And so ultimately, this is why we increasingly see from Facebook, but also other companies, a desire for government to play a role. That's particularly challenging in the speech space, especially in the United States. Uh, But there's a desire to externalize responsibility for these choices because the consequences for him as an individual and the company have not been positive. Yeah. How do you see that tension given this? You brought up the speech space and it's something that we just, you know, we wrestle with on the on the show all of our frequent guests because the you know the, the the tension inherent is obvious. How do you see that playing out, and how should we even begin to think about um, uh, putting our thumb on the scale when it comes to you know First Amendment issues? So I think you know at the core of our book, when we grapple with this issue uh, in our discussion, it's it's to recognize that. There's a trilemma of values that are being traded off Mm -hmm. in the speech space. So on the one hand, we have a social commitment and value that we attach to speech itself. And that particularly comes about, this is a protection of speech in particular from government constraints on speech, like a world where it's hard to be heard and you don't want the ability to challenge the state, to express your identity or your views to be suppressed. And that's intention, potentially, depending on how speech is used, with other values that we care about. You know, the protection of human dignity if people are being attacked, right? Attacked, not just attacked violently, but attacked with toxic speech and hate speech online or in person. But also a a third value, which is the value of a a healthy information ecosystem that Mm -hmm. undergirds our democracy. So these are the three tensions that we're navigating in this space. And we're navigating them at a time when Speech is no longer rare, this commodity Mm. that has a hard time sort of being birthed. Mm. Instead, speech is super abundant, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone, you've got your podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got my blog. Mm -hmm. Everyone is being heard. We no longer have to fight for access to ABC, CBS, and NBC. My kids couldn't even tell you what those networks are, (laughs) right? 
They wouldn't even know in California it's channels four, five, and seven, yeah. right? That's what I grew up with yeah. because there was two, four, five, seven, 36. Right. Those were my channels when I was growing up. My kids have no understanding of the gatekeeping power that used to exist and the ways in which that constrains speech. So speech is now super abundant. And in a world in which speech is super abundant, the power goes to those who determine what we hear, right? That's a curation function. And what was on display with the Facebook files was just how powerfully that curation function is being exercised, right? And so while some of the debates in Washington are about things like censorship, right? Our colleague Renee DeResta draws the distinction between freedom of speech and freedom of reach, that nothing preserves or guarantees people's right to have their speech broadcast to billions of people by a private infrastructure. Nothing protects that right. And in fact, private institutions, like companies, have the ability to choose how they're going to use that tool. What's problematic about the current moment is we don't really understand how they're using that powerful tool. There's a lot of discomfort with the choices that they're making about the standards that they set. We have no transparency or accountability about whether they're meeting their own standards. And we haven't had the tough conversations about what kind of floor we want to create for the kind of power that exists in the private sector to exercise that curation function. And that requires a transformation of our mindset. It requires us leaning in to a world in which we deal with these complex issues. Um, but so far, we've left it entirely to companies to make these decisions on their own, and that isn't working out so well. So I want to then talk about the things people can do. Um, before we finish here, I want to make sure that we that we leave listeners with hope, some some glimmer of hope, because especially when Facebook's in the news, and especially when we're talking about the 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 the, the almost impossibility of solving these problems. I mean, even the, the philosophical questions we've been talking about today, like you said, there are no right or wrong answers, but there are very important questions. A lot of our listeners, one of the one of the most common questions we get. Um, given the you know the difficulty of a lot of the news lately is what can i do what what is actually within my power to do what do i have agency over and and you know to the extent that i can between picking up my kids and making dinner how can i make the world a little bit of a better place <sighs> what do you have for those people at an individual level and we can talk about systemic change that has to happen we can talk about those solutions as well um, because individuals ultimately are going to have to drive those changes. Um, where do you start at the at the at the basic level? What is one foot in front of the other? Um, how do we begin to change mindsets uh, and begin to create systemic change here? Well, it's one way to begin to affect some change and also feel as though you have more agency than some people ascribe to themselves, which is basically no agency at all. Within many applications, you can do things like set privacy settings. You do have some level of control over what data you give up. You have your behavior. So to the extent that you can self-modulate, think about what are the pieces of content you interact with and why, to try to point out places where you actually see misinformation online. And in those situations, the more that you can do to try to limit the ways the application gathers data to push things in front of you, how you choose your time to interact with the application or the set of applications you actually make use of, and then the ways you navigate 
And the way to think about that is every action you take on a platform like Facebook is giving data to an algorithm that is now making a decision as to what else to put in front of you. So you get upset and you interact with content that makes you upset or you mark a bunch of stuff as angry. Guess what you're going to get? And if you're cognizant of that, that what the algorithm is trying to do is to keep you engaged and give you more of what you do, that means you have an opportunity to actually intentionally make choices about the data you give to the algorithm. If you like stuff that makes you happy and there's things you like or you put a happy face on it or care or love, do that more. The things that make you angry, don't provide feedback to the system mm. to get more of that. Set your privacy settings. That's an important one. You can do things like choosing what browser settings you use for what privacy you get. Um, but at the end of the day, those are still the individual actions. You know, remember that you're a citizen. You got to vote. You got to get involved because that's the way we're going to get the systemic change. Yeah. So that's part, that's part of how I'd approach the answer, which is to say, you know, people occupy a lot of different roles in society. I'm sure that's true among your listeners, right? Some people may be technologists. Some people may be policymakers. Some people may be in the business or the finance world. But there's two things that all of your listeners are. The first is that they're consumers, which means they get the ability to exercise choice. Um, and in some ways, their choices are too constrained. And the power asymmetry may make it very difficult for you to effectuate your preferences. Uh, but there are options for you. And so get educated about what those options are and, and, and use that power that you have. But the most important thing that everyone is, is that they're a citizen. They're a citizen of somewhere. Many of your listeners are citizens of the United States. Other people might be citizens of European countries or elsewhere. And I think what often gets lost in conversations about big tech and its effects on our lives is just how complicit our democratic institutions have been in the realization of these social harms. That is, yes, we can look at the creation of an individual technology and say social media is having these harmful effects on the quality of our information ecosystem, or the automation of jobs is generating distributional consequences for people at the lower end of the educational spectrum. But the failure of government to name those social harms and to address and mitigate those social harms is a failure of our democratic institutions. And you can't point at Mark Zuckerberg and say, why didn't you X, Y, or Z? Because that's not his incentives are not aligned to do that. I would like a tech sector that cares about the health of our information ecosystem and our democracy. And we're going to do everything we can to create technologists who are more cognizant of the value trade-offs. But ultimately, our political institutions need to get into the game. And I think this is why that role of being a citizen is so important. To what extent do you have as a citizen, listener, well-defined views about whether the United States should have a federal privacy law or a perspective on whether we need more aggressive antitrust enforcement when it comes uh, to the creation and, 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 and growth of these big technology companies? Do you have a view on algorithmic auditing and what rights you feel that you're entitled to, entitled to when a machine is making decisions about your access to a loan or whether you get employed? or who you meet on a dating app? Do you think that you deserve some rights to due process and fairness around these kinds of decisions? These are things that we need to have views on and we need to express those views because in the absence of us expressing our views, our politicians hear from a very small number of concentrated interests that have headquarters within 10 miles of where we're sitting. And those folks have very clear ideas about the regulatory framework that they would like, and it's not one that serves our broader social goals. 
Mehran, Jeremy, I'm so glad we uh, were able to have this conversation in person here in, you know, the ground zero uh, of all of the problems that we're talking about. Um, and I, I appreciate you making the time today. And I'm even more appreciative of the work that you're doing here. Uh, and I hope this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, and, and I'd love to continue it. Before I let you go, where's the best way for people to follow your work um, and and even get in touch with you? Uh, Twitter, your blog, um, how, how do you want people to find you? Well, we all have websites. We're pretty easy to search for. Um, you can find more information about us and about the book at a website called systemerrorbook.com. That has our names on it. And if you just do a couple quick searches, maybe add the term Stanford in there, you will find our web pages and that will have our contact information. Terrific. Jeremy? I think one other thing I'd just say as a parting, parting shot for you is that we're profoundly optimistic. I mean, you had a big sigh there at the end in part because these issues feel so enormous. Um, and I think for most of us, we feel, you know, sort of disempowered in the face of, of these changes. But one of the virtues of, of teaching at a university is we're exposed to young people all the time. We get older, our hair gets gray. Everyone who comes here stays <laughs> the same age. And, and we see in young people a changing view about the relationship between tech and society. We see that now playing out in tech companies as workers inside Facebook demand the stop of, of, of efforts around facial recognition tools or partnerships with national security agencies. So people are exercising their voice. And the moment we find ourselves in uh, with the Facebook papers and the attention that's happening in Washington and Europe is a moment where the social scientist would say a policy window mm -hmm. is opening. Change is upon us. And if all of us get in the game uh, in our individual roles, I really think that a better and healthier relationship with tech is possible. But we can't assume that it's going to happen naturally, and we can't assume that it's going to happen if we leave the technologists in charge. That is a perfect place to leave it. Until next time. You can get System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot at the link in our show notes. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.